millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Jeremy Cliff in London. I'm Megan Gibson in London. It's Friday, the 15th of October. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, this is a first for the World Review podcast because in our first ever episode, we are actually all in one room in one city together. So this is rather exciting. Megan and I are in the New Statesman studio in our London offices, and we are joined by our colleague, Philippa Nuttall, who is our new environment and sustainability editor. Welcome, Philippa. Thank you very much. And so strange to be sitting all in one room. Uh, I'm sure we'll get used to it. Let's just start off before we get into our main topic today, which will be the upcoming COP26 Climate Summit, by running through some moments from the past week that we've been looking at. Uh, Philippa, as our guest, um, what from the past week in world affairs has caught your attention? So I'm going to go a little bit niche. So I'm based in uh, Brussels, uh, in Belgium, and I'm quite excited by the fact that the Belgian government has decided from 2022 is going to invest uh, considerable amounts of money in night trains. And I think if we're talking about emissions reductions, this is a a great way forward that we reduce our reliance, uh, especially internally in the EU, on long-haul flights and we we start uh, getting on those night trains again. Also good news for Brits because one can go through the Eurotunnel and Europe's one's oyster. Don't get me started on night trains because I'll be, we'll be here all afternoon. Megan, what's been your moment of the week? This is something that was widely announced this week. So Harvard University decided that it is going to be moving its summer language program from Beijing to Taipei. So this comes after a few years, actually, of what Harvard describes as kind of a chilly relationship with the host university, which is the Beijing Language and Culture University. There's some reporting of the university wouldn't let them use certain buildings and rooms. The university kind of put more and more restrictions on the program, even said that the Americans couldn't celebrate the 4th of July in the summer. So they decided, you know what, we're going to move our program to Taipei. And I think this is really significant, not only because of the tensions that are going on right now between Beijing and Taipei, but there's just the loss of soft power, I guess you could say, that's happening from China. This is quite a prestigious program. There's lots of people that will probably be going into quite significant policy jobs in the future. And for them to be developing their experience of Chinese culture and language from that side of the strait, I think, you know, it'll have interesting ramifications down the line. And China is struggling on the soft power front anyway. So it's interesting to see it 
make that sacrifice. A moment that I've been struck by, obviously, I'm continuing to follow the German coalition talks from Berlin, where I'm usually based. And yesterday, as we record this, so on Tuesday, Olaf Scholz, the SPD chancellor candidate, and it seems increasingly likely the next chancellor, so Angela Merkel's successor, was in Washington for perfectly normal meetings with the IMF. But the fact that he went was seen as a great sign of confidence in the ongoing coalition talks. It was widely said that if things were really close or uncertain, that he wouldn't have left Berlin for that. And I think it also allowed him to remind everyone why he has this strong claim to be the next chancellor, which is there he was treading the boards of the world stage, attending big international summits. And he he does have the look and feel of a chancellor. The, the talks are at an early stage, but the increasingly the consensus in Berlin is that we will have a new government of the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Liberals before Christmas. So worth watching that obviously over the next weeks too. Absolutely. You mentioned next coming weeks. So that brings us to our topic of discussion. Philippa, COP26, why don't we start off with you setting up what exactly it is and why is it so important? Thanks, Megan. Yes. So COP26. So COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And we've been having COPs for 30 years, even though most people are probably not aware of it. And they're set up on under the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And most people remember COP from 2015, when we agreed the Paris Climate Agreement. And the Paris Climate Agreement was seen as a first, a, a success in the sense that virtually every country in the world now has signed up to try and keep global warming below 1.5 degrees below pre-industrial levels, which is, is quite a challenge. Countries set out roadmaps as to how they plan to get there. And now, four years later, five years later, they were expected to come forward with an updated plan because the pledges that were put forward would not keep global warming um, below 1.5 degrees uh, C. In fact, they would allow global warming to go up to three, four degrees. So COP26 uh, should have been held last year, but was delayed because of COVID. It will now be held uh, in Glasgow starting on the 31st of October for two weeks. What exactly do we expect from this? It runs over these two weeks. We're expecting heads of government to turn up for the first few days. Uh, Am I right in remembering that the Paris talks came to the crunch towards the very end? How do you expect it to play out over that period? I think these are going to be very different talks because we're not looking at a big final announcement necessarily. So there are various things that are at stake. The first thing, as I've mentioned, are what we call nationally determined contributions, which is essentially each country's roadmap to keeping global warming uh, below 1.5 degrees. So certain countries such as the UK, the EU and various other countries in the world have come forward with updated plans as to how they plan to reduce emissions more quickly. But we're still missing big pieces of the jigsaw. So, for example, Australia. Australia, Russia, Saudi Arabia, which are our big emitting countries, have still not come forward with anything. So that'll be part of the discussions is how do we get these plans? How do how can we get countries to pledge more so that we're actually on track for 1.5 degrees? Another issue that will be has been discussed many times is carbon trading. So this is the idea that it's cheaper to reduce emissions, for example, in India rather than in the UK, and so that developed countries pay um, a certain amount of money for a tonne of carbon to, for example, pay for a wind farm in India, which will then reduce emissions in India because climate change is a global problem. And at the same time, a developed country can continue to a certain degree to emit, but globally, those emissions will no longer exist. So that's the second piece of the jigsaw. 
A third question which will be looked at is nature-based solutions, so the idea that we can plant trees and and other ways of using nature to actually offset emissions. Um, And then there are more slightly niche subjects, such as the methane, how we can reduce methane emissions. So we talk a lot about carbon emissions. Carbon emissions stay in the atmosphere for a very long time, but methane emissions stay for a shorter amount of time, but are much more potent in terms of their their impact on climate change and global warming. Um, And methane emissions, often people think about cows, but a lot of methane emissions come from oil and gas exploration. So it's how can we reduce emissions from industries like that, which can be quick, quite quick wins and bring down emissions quicker than we can with carbon emissions. So there's plenty of stuff on the table. One quick follow-up question, then I know Meg wants to come on to this question about the just transition, so how you make this fair. But for listeners who are watching events in Glasgow over those weeks, and particularly towards the end, can you say in a nutshell what a, a successful summit would look like? I think that's a really difficult question to answer. But I think what we need to see is that there is movement, real movement, and that governments are now extremely serious about tackling climate change. As I said before, there are big pieces of the jigsaw missing. So we need to see something from China. What does China plan to do in terms of net zero emissions? China came forward recently and said it would no longer fund coal mines, coal projects uh, outside China, but there's obviously still a lot of coal inside China. So what's are China's plans? Um, Also, obviously, countries whereby their economy are massively still reliant on fossil fuels such as Saudi Arabia. Um, So these are big pieces of the jigsaw. So I think if we can get a general movement whereby we get um, reduction plans from all countries and they're serious, they won't get us onto 1.5. But if they get us closer to 1.5, I think that would be a good way of seeing that there was success. I wanted to ask, I think over the past two years, we've seen a lot uh, with how the pandemic has played out that not all societies are impacted the same way. I think even with COP, it's billed as a global summit, but we're seeing a lot of representatives from the global south are not going to be there. Also because of the pandemic and restrictions and vaccine inequity. What can we learn from the pandemic and how that played out and apply it to a just transition and more equitable recovery from climate change? Sure. Yes. So one of the other big pieces of the jigsaw was in Copenhagen in 2009 at the COP in Copenhagen, which was billed as a failure because it didn't manage to to get agreement on many subjects. But one one thing that was agreed there was this idea that developed countries by 2020 would have would be providing 100 billion dollars a year of climate financing, which would help developing countries so that it was more of a just and equitable transition. Now, this hasn't happened. The OECD came out with a report recently, which said, I think there's now about $80 billion being spent by developed countries on climate financing in developing countries. So that's another thing that needs to happen in Glasgow is that the developed countries really sit down and say that a minimum amount of money that they will put on the table will be $100 billion a year um, for climate change, mitigation and adaptation in developing countries. And many non-governmental organisations would argue that amount needs to be much higher, around $140 billion, because inflation has obviously taken place since 2009. Are there any indications at this stage of whether they will stump up that sort of amount? So I think the US made lots of moves in the right direction recently. So I think the 100 billion, there's there's optimism that 100 billion will be on the table. Whether there will be any more than that, I think, is another question. Obviously, COP hasn't began yet, but there's pre-COP meetings. There's a lot of back-channeling ahead of it. How much does the run-up to COP 
matter in the final outcome. I think that, that it matters a lot. I mean, and there's been a bit of coverage in the UK media about the, the UK minister, Alex Sharma, has been flying around the world and he's produced too many emissions. But I think we've all had knowledge during uh, lockdown of, of trying to communicate through Zoom and actually face-to-face meetings are the way forward. And, and this is such a, a difficult subject and to wish to negotiate. That flying around the world, perhaps, hopefully, if there is a successful outcome, is justified in the sense that those initial discussions are very important, yeah. Talking about the context of the summit, obviously it will take place as many around the world grapple with uh, an energy crisis. Energy costs are going up in a lot of countries. China's having power cuts even, having to, I think, scale down. It looks like some of its own ambitions on on certain climate targets, at least judging by its approach to coal in, in response to this crisis. How, first of all, how does that fit into the broader picture of the transition to a carbon neutral world? And how do you see it, secondly, affecting the summit itself? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think this context is super important. In terms of the energy transition, research shows that the the real reason or one of the main reasons why energy prices have gone up is because gas prices have gone up and it's not because we've got more renewables in the system. And actually reducing our dependence on fossil fuels, especially on gas, would keep prices much lower in terms of energy bills. So I think that's the first thing. I think also that what Megan said before is very important and this idea of a social justice framing of the COP is extremely important, both in terms of developing countries, but also in terms of developed countries and that there is a focus. It's not the main focus of COP, but just in general that when we energy ministers um, or or, or prime ministers deal with the climate crisis, that we're also thinking about especially the poorest members of society and how we can make sure that they can also afford to transition, for example, from a gas boiler to a heat pump or or insulate their house or, or carry out anything else that needs to happen in terms of the transition. You wrote a very good piece about China's response to the, the, the rising prices. How worried should we be by the fact that it seems to be struggling to meet its energy needs already? I mean, I think we have to remember that we've just been through an extremely unusual period of time whereby global economies essentially came to a halt for a certain amount of time. And so that's also part of the reason that we have the energy crisis, why China is now ramping up its coal production, because everybody is suddenly trying to pump out and the economy has essentially gone from a standstill to a, a very fast start. So I think as a short term measure, we shouldn't start panicking and saying this is the end, nothing's going to happen. What we need to see now, as I said before, we need China and other countries to commit fully to an ambition of net zero emissions by 2050, but also interim targets because 2050 is obviously a long way off. And it's we can say in our personal lives, you know, we plan we'll do something five years down the line, but you actually need to, how are you going to get there? We need a roadmap of where where we're going to get to. So we need to know what's going to happen in 25, what's going to happen in 2030, so that we can see that all countries are moving in the right direction. Do you think China's ready to do that? Because there have been some big commitments by China in the last 12 months. It's committed to going carbon neutral by 2060. It's committed to stopping financing coal-powered fire stations outside of its own borders. Do you see it following through in reality? I think China is a is an unknown quantity. The announcement came out, for example, on net zero by 2060 was an unexpected announcement. I think the whole world was taken by surprise that that happened. So I don't think we should count them out and we should say nothing's going to happen. We should wait to see and hope that they will come forward. China, as well as being a, a big polluter, is also a world leader in terms of renewables, in terms of wind energy. And we mustn't forget that there are two sides to this story and look at that side of the story. Also in terms of tree planting, China China has done lots of tree planting in certain areas. So it's not a simple narrative just to say they're doing absolutely nothing, but it's clear now that they need to do more than they have done till now. 
I know China is a big, huge piece of the puzzle, but what about other countries that are laggards that really this is going to be their chance to step up and do you think that they will? Yeah, so I think the main countries here, there's also Australia, which is has not still not come forward and signed up to net zero. There's, there's a big hope that Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, will come forward with that pledge ahead of COP. Russia, again, is another unknown quantity. Russia's climate plans in the past have been largely based on tree planting and natural nature solutions, which um, are not actually obviously bringing down emissions per se from their energy sector. So that there's big questions there. And then I think in terms of Saudi Arabia, exactly what will they do? Somebody was saying to me the other day that I think Saudi Arabia is sending like a thousand people to COP. I don't know whether that's an exaggeration, but they clearly have massive invested interests. Their economy is based on essentially one product. They now need to start transitioning that economy away from fossil fuels and agree how they're going to do that. Just to come back to Megan's earlier point about the the just transition and the costs and where they fall, there are obviously a lot of countries that that could easily come out of this feeling that they've got a bad deal because they haven't industrialized yet, they haven't had the they haven't contributed to climate change to the extent that the industrialized world has, and are being asked to make the same sacrifices. Is there any sense of those countries? And I'm thinking of I know there has been cooperation between I think it's India and South Africa have worked together before on some of this as a sort of as figureheads of that block of those countries corporate focusing and block and, and standing together against the richer countries and saying, no, you need to do more, you need to support us more financially. Yeah, so I think that the financial contribution from the developed world is really key. And so developing ne- countries need to see two things. They need to see that the developed world is capable and willing to pay, especially because they've already pledged to do so, and also that they're also willing to reduce their emissions. I think then in terms of developing countries, certain countries are already moving forward. Bangladesh, for example, at COP26 is expected to come come forward with a climate prosperity plan, which actually shows how you can have a prosperous economy while being sustainable and and protecting the, the environment and reducing emissions. A lot of these countries are also on the front line of, of climate change, so they very much see in terms of increased extreme weather events um, that they're suffering from climate change already. And I think also we need to see the, the benefits. So they clearly need to, it's much cheaper for them to have renewable to bring solar systems into place than to obviously bring oil or gas or coal online there. So the question is that it's cheaper, it makes more sense, and there are added benefits in terms of cleaner air, fossil fuels, as if you have coal power stations... And that produces lots of air pollution. And also in terms of jobs, um, there's there's lots of research out there that shows investing in renewables will also create jobs in, in, in a newer economy, will create a plenty of jobs. I think what's also important in developing countries and in the developed world is we also now need a programme of how we reskill people, how we can make sure that workers are trained to work in these new industries and to contribute so that they're not left behind either. It's one of the things that strikes me is sometimes missing from the coverage of China's climate policies is the extent to which it's in China's interests to be ambitious on this. You know, China suffers from climate change as much as anyone. They've had the Yangtze has flooded, they have terrible pollution in their cities, and it's in their interest to to transition the economy. They have their own rust belt too reliant on coal. And so I I think the idea that China always has to be coaxed or incentivized into cooperating is perhaps a bit of a misunderstanding. I'm really curious how the private sector factors into COP26. What kind of presence will they have there and what kind of influence will they have there? Yeah, that's always a a very good question. I think in terms of the influence, there's always an influence and we can either view it as negative um, or positive. But I think ultimately it boils down to the fact that we will need private investment to mitigate and adapt to climate change. It can't be done through public funding alone. And I think what we need is that politicians are, are... 
as well informed as they can be so that they they understand you know when they're being lobbied with a real solution to climate change and when an industry is simply pushing a solution which perhaps is not really going to get to the root of the the problem and actually help to mitigate and, and adapt to climate change. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That brings us to our You Ask Us listener question. Megan, do you want to take it away? So David writes in to say, how does or doesn't COP26 take into account the other major COP, COP15, to write a convention on biological diversity? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think increasingly we're seeing this convergence between the need to protect biodiversity. We have a massive biodiversity crisis at the moment and the need to deal with the the climate crisis. And I think it's become increasingly clear that we can't solve one without the other. We need the natural world to be protected if we're going to get to grips with climate change. And at the same time, if we get to grips with climate change, we have to also protect the natural world. The two go hand in hand. So the two are not sort of directly linked. But as I said, natural nature-based solutions will be part of the discussions around COP. And COP itself, while you have the mainstream, the official negotiations around that, there are also lots of side events. There are lots of discussions. So these issues will also be discussed there. And clearly, both these bodies are UN bodies. So there is some overlap. And I think going forward, that will be an agenda that we see increasingly brought together as to how can we solve the biodiversity crisis and get to grips with climate change. Listeners, Philippa will be in Glasgow for the entirety of the COP26 summit. She'll be writing for the New Statesman from there. So do follow Follow all of our coverage of the summit from Philippa, from the international team. It will all be at newstatesman.com. And we have further upcoming episodes of World Review planned on the climate crisis ahead of this very important crunch point. 
So with that, we come to the final section in which we say what we're looking ahead to in the next seven days. Philippa, would you like to go first? I would, and I'm going to, to a certain degree, repeat what I said before, which is that in the next couple of days, I hope that Australia, Russia, Saudi Arabia and China will come out with updated roadmaps in terms of how they're going to reduce emissions and really prove what we've been discussing today, that they are serious about getting to grips with climate change and, and bringing down emissions as agreed under the Paris Climate Agreement. And if our listeners wanted to catch up on the key data ahead of the COP summit, is there anything you could suggest they look at to do so? I think they should come to uh, newstatesman.com and see what we're writing. If you go to the environment section, we have an emissions tracker and there is lots of data there showing what countries have actually pledged in terms of reducing emissions, where global emissions are. And so I'd welcome you to go and have a look at that page and, and see what you can find out. And in fact, we'll also put it in the show notes for this podcast, uh, along with the piece by Philippa on China's um, climate situation too. Megan, what are you looking ahead to? I'll be looking at some of the same global players that Philippa will be, but in a different setting. So following this week's G20 Extraordinary Summit on Afghanistan and getting aid to the country, where Western leaders are you know, navigating the tricky idea of how to help the people of Afghanistan without recognizing the Taliban as a legitimate government. Putin and Xi Jinping did not attend this summit, and Putin is holding his own set of regional discussions in Moscow on October 20th, in which he's invited leading figures of the Taliban. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of those discussions. And while Russia has stopped short of officially recognizing the Taliban, I think this will be quite insightful into seeing whether he will end up doing that in the future. Absolutely. I will be interested to see the report of Brazil's Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry on the COVID-19 outbreak there. The country has seen more deaths than any country apart from the US from the pandemic. And the commission has been looking into the many missteps of the government of Jair Bolsonaro, the uh, far-right president of Brazil. And the report is expected to indict him and a number of top officials on 11 major charges. And of course, this all plays out as the country prepares for what looks set to be a dramatic election campaign next year. Bolsonaro will be going up against Lula, um, the country's former left-leaning president. And of course, the fact that the failures of the Bolsonaro government are being spotlighted here just adds to the sense that the tide is going out on him. He is struggling in the polls and this will just add to that. So that's worth paying attention to. Thank you so much, Philippa, for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this World Review podcast, please like, subscribe and leave a review. And why not tell a friend or enemy about it? And sign up for free to the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producers have been May Robson and Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.